Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, Beaulieu Estate is a Napa Valley institution celebrating 120 years, a survivor of prohibition. We'll talk to its current custodian, only the fifth chief winemaker in its history, Trevor Derling. His ambition was to be a top gun, but he had a shot at winemaking instead and now has one of the top jobs in Californian wine. Beaulieu Vineyard is a 120-year-old fixture in Napa Valley's history that's renowned for its legendary Georges de Latour private reserve Cabernet Sauvignon, considered one of Napa's cult Cabernets. Given the length of its history, which includes the years of America's disastrous experiment with prohibition, it is perhaps surprising that its current chief winemaker is only the fifth person to hold the job after some illustrious predecessors. Uh, So it requires big shoes. Uh, Trevor Derling actually set out to be a fighter pilot, uh, but a workshop at the renowned UC Davis University kept him grounded, changing the course of his career. It didn't do badly, though. I'm delighted to say he joins me from uh, Napa. Trevor, welcome to The Drinking Hour. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. It's a great pleasure to have you here. And Beaulieu, one of the most famous names in American wine, frankly, has a fascinating story, which we'll come to in a moment. Because first of all, I want to kind of come to your own story. You made the not especially long journey from Sonoma to Napa, right. uh, as in you're, you're born in Sonoma, I believe. But actually, you had very different ambitions for yourself when you went to university, didn't you? I certainly did. Yeah, I had a completely different planned pathway at the time. Mm. And you were born and bred around wine. Obviously, Sonoma, very, very famous, as famous as, as Napa, I suppose. And, and, and wine was sort of part of the family table, wasn't it? <clears throat> yeah, it certainly was. And it's, it's actually ironic that I, I don't have any family members who are in the wine business. My father uh, spent his career in the beer business. And we always say, you know, as winemakers, that it takes a lot of, of great beer to make a great wine, uh, which is very true. But I, but I certainly grew up in a family where wine was always present at the dinner table. Both of my, my parents are very into it and collect wine, etc. And uh, I had, a, you know, gained a strong affinity towards it from a very young age. You went to UC Davis, which is part of the University of California, very famous for its training of some of the world's most famous winemakers. So I was unsurprised to see UC Davis there when I was looking up your uh, own history. But um, actually, you went to the university with a view to being a top gun, didn't you? Your, your plan was to join the Air Force. 
<laughs> it actually was, yes. And this this stems from a, a very close relationship that I had with my uh, grandfather, my, my maternal grandfather, uh, who was in the U.S. Air Force for uh, over 35 years. And he was a, a stockbroker by trade, but actually uh, stayed in the reserves uh, after the Second World War for a very long time. And he flew B-52s, the Flying Fortress. And I, I was enthralled by this from a very young age. And so my original plan actually straight from high school, so I would have been about 17 years old, uh, I had applied to the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs and made a decision kind of at the last minute uh, to go to UC Davis instead and go into the Reserve Officers Training Corps, which lasted uh, less than a year. <laughs> and I decided uh, very quickly, uh, actually, after taking an introductory winemaking course, uh, that this was this was the path for me. Yeah, it's quite a change, though, isn't it? I mean, that yes. was a big moment, that uh, winemaking course that you went on, I guess, kind of by accident. It was somewhat by accident. I mean, it was out of, you know, personal interest. And at the time, I mean, you know, let's let's be honest, when you're when you're 18 years old, and you, and you just enter into, you know, undergraduate university, you know, it's it's the idea of um, committing 10 years of your life toward one single thing, which is what it would have been at the time had I gone into the into the Air Force did seem, you know, <clears throat> did seem a bit daunting. And so I still had a couple of questions in my mind. This is what I, I really felt like I was I was meant to do. Uh, and I ended up taking a, that intro winemaking course just out of personal interest, because again, I, you know, I had grown up with wine at the dinner table, uh, had an affinity towards it, but I never had really considered it as a uh, professional option. Um, and, and this is when the light bulb went off for me. And so it was actually that following summer that I ended up uh, getting a summer job in a cellar, and I was uh, sampling grapes from vineyards. I was I was working in the laboratory and ultimately in the uh, in the tank cellar, uh, and this is where I completely fell in love with the entire process and decided to change the course, you know, my, my entire direction towards winemaking, and have mm. been doing it ever since. Yeah, the rest is history, as it were. But but mm -hmm. actually, you have one of the top jobs um, in the Napa Valley. Um, so I mean. Changing your mind at UC Davis, discovering um, a passion for wine is one thing, but how on earth did you go from that? I mean, you don't look very old now, to be honest. So how did you go from that? <laughs> Thank you. It's all to, the wine. <laughs> <laughs> um, how did you, flattery will get me everywhere. How did you um, go from uh, UC Davis to Beaulieu? Well, it's a, it's a great story, actually. My um, well, d during the time uh, as an undergrad at, at UC Davis, I was working uh, regular harvests each each season while I was going through school. So my first was in the Russian River Valley at a place called Sonoma Cotrera Vineyard, which uh, specializes in in Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Uh, and this was advantageous because that you know typically these varietals have an earlier um, ripening season and so an earlier harvest, which allowed me to complete the harvest and then ultimately get back to school in the fall. I did the next couple of vintages making sparkling wine, actually, which um, logistically made a lot of sense because, again, very early uh, harvest season comparatively. And then after I graduated from university, uh, I was introduced to a winemaker up on uh, the Sonoma side of Mount Veeder. It was called Moon Mountain at the time. It's still, they're still making wine today. It's now called Repri, it's been renamed. And this is where I fell in love with Cabernet Sauvignon. And interestingly, I was, my original plan was to, to travel around the world and work different vintages in, in different areas. 
And I was given an incredible offer to join the team at Moon Mountain pretty much right out of university. And so that was another crossroads. I had to decide, <clears throat> do I want to be a traveling winemaker or do I want to, to, to join in and really get my, uh, you know, get into the trenches and, and learn quickly? And I chose that route. Um, ultimately did get the international experience uh, later on, but spent about six years of my career there at Moon Mountain. Uh, and again, this is where I fell in love with Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, in about 2009, I was introduced to a man named Tom Rinaldi, uh, who was the winemaker for Hewitt Vineyard and a place called Provenance, which is here in Rutherford. And he hired me on as his assistant winemaker uh, officially in 2010. And so this is where I made the long trek over the Mayakamas mountain range and landed in Rutherford and started making Cabernet from this region. So during that time, uh, we were actually part of the same wine group who owned Beaulieu. And I was introduced to uh, two of my predecessors here at BV. Uh, and I would get to come over and, and, and taste with these guys regularly. And so I learned quite a bit about the vineyards, of course, uh, George de la Tour Private Reserve, all of the history, and actually became part of the uh, the blending panel for for private reserve. So I was exposed to these wines quite a long time ago now. Uh, and then when Jeffrey announced his retirement in late 2016, I was given the uh, the golden tap on the shoulder that there was interest for me to to trek across Highway 29 and to join this this historic producer. And and I, that that decision was very easy. I bet it was. I mean, that is a golden tap. Uh, uh, by yeah. any measure. Yeah. I mean, um, just before we get to the uh, history of the winery, um, you mentioned Cabernet. Uh, they all say Cabernet is king in, in Napa. Um, what makes uh, Cabernet in Napa so special? Well, it's, I think, a number of things. I mean, it's, it, you know, the, the microclimate and the terroir, right? We have, when you compare the Napa Valley, which, of course, even within itself has tremendous, you know, variation in microclimates and soil profile, et cetera. Um, we have it, I have to admit, we have it pretty easy compared to a lot of other growing regions in terms of weather. Now, recently we have experienced, you know, droughts and wildfires and things like this, but it is very rare that we have, you know, major frost events or hail or, you know, cold weather to where we can't get the desired ripening. So we, we have the, we have a great climate, I would say, overall. But the other really unique thing about the Napa Valley is that there are over one half of the world's identified soil types that exist within this relatively small area. And, and just for those listeners who, <clears throat> who aren't exactly sure about this, um, you know, we're, we're about 30 miles north to south and about five miles wide. So the Napa Valley is a fraction of the size of Bordeaux, for example. And to have this incredible diversity in terroir is, is really a unique thing. Um, we're located in Rutherford, which is right in the middle of the valley, and this is Cabernet country, right? So a combination of, you know, having wonderful soils. Uh, we're, we're mostly planted <clears throat> on an alluvial fan, which is uh, washed down over the Mycomas range for millions of years. So really well draining, um, just enough nutrients in the soil to grow grapevines very in a, in a very healthy manner. But there's just enough stress on them to give us that concentration that we want. Uh, we're also a relatively warm part of the valley because we're far enough north to where we are away from the San Francisco Bay. So we're away from that maritime influence. Uh, and we, we do get the warmth that, you know, the, the high enough daytime temperatures to ripen uh, our Cabernet Sauvignon and get that phenolic ripeness that we're looking for. So um, it, it's really mother nature is what it comes down to. This is, this is why we're so fortunate. 
Yeah, and you are kind of blessed there, with the exception of those terrible <laughs> fires that, that cause um, uh, sort of horrible mayhem from time to time but we won't dwell on that we'll we'll go to the the history uh because it's yeah. um you know we talk about new world uh in the context of california but this is uh, an illustrious history so Beaulieu, uh founded by uh, george de la tour tell us about him and and how uh, the winery was founded well de la tour was a i mean an absolute the definition of an entrepreneur so he was he was born in Bordeaux and, you know, did come from a family of uh, grape growers. And so, you know, he, he grew up on a vineyard. Ironically, the, their vineyard was was decimated early on by phylloxera, um, which, of course, was a devastating thing for him at the time. You know, ultimately, they rebounded, of course. But uh, this would prove to be really incredible experience later on once once he landed in California, which we'll get to in a moment. But he had a, a vision from an, a very early age of cr wanting to wanting to craft wines in the new world that would ultimately rival those of Europe. He went into the, he had the travel bug, I think. He wanted to get out of there. He wanted to see the world. And so in the early 1880s, he made his way to the United States, uh, of course, first landing on the East Coast and then ultimately making his way to San Francisco uh, and purchased a home in San Francisco in 1883 and founded a company called California Tartar Works. So <clears throat> what he would do there is he, you know, he actually got to know many of the local vintners through this, through this business that he had built. Um, he was traveling up primarily to Sonoma, which actually had more wine producers than the Napa Valley at that point in time, uh, but also a little bit to Napa. And he would get to know the local vintners and he would enter their fermentation tanks and scrape off the tartrate crystals from the inside of the tanks. Now, tartrate crystals, of course, are the same thing that you, you notice in an aged bottle of red, you know, the sediment that's on the side of the bottle or, you know, the crystals that are on the bottom of a cork, for example. Uh, that is actually cream of tartar. It's the same thing. It's potassium and tartaric acid fused together, uh, although it's, it's typically colored, of course, if it's in a red wine. So he saw this as an opportunity to, to build a business because vintners were just throwing this stuff away. So he, you know, of course, they would uh, allow him to enter because he's the end of the day, he's cleaning their tanks for them. He's taking away this material that they were having to, you know, spend money to gather up and, and dump it. So he gathered this up and he opened up a couple of different processing facilities around the North Bay where he would purify this and bag it up into 100 pound bags and sell it uh, as cream of tartar, right, which is heavily used in baking. And the, the idea here was to ultimately save up enough money to where he could sell the business and then purchase a significant amount of land on his own and start producing his own wines. And I think it's important to say that, you know, during that period where he was traveling back and forth frequently between San Francisco, Sonoma and Napa, he gained a strong affinity towards the Napa Valley specifically. Uh, and this was quite a unique thing at the time, because you have to understand at the turn of the century, there were more plum trees planted in the Napa Valley than there were grapevines. Um, it was not anywhere close to, be, to becoming a, a, a really globally recognized wine growing region at that point. But he had this affinity because of that terroir, that unique microclimate that we were talking about before. Um, he was able to accurately predict that this, of course, would ultimately become an incredible place to grow wine grapes. Uh, but also for logistical reasons, the, the Napa Valley opens to the south towards the San Francisco Bay. Uh, and this would make it quite simple for him to be able to, you know, after his wines were produced, to get them out onto a, you know, onto rail cars and down to the bay where they could 
they could load them up onto ships and get them out uh, very quickly and easily. So he was always thinking ahead. 1900, he ended up selling California Tartar Works and he uh, purchased some property on the Western Rutherford bench. And his wife famously said when she, when she saw this property, what a beautiful place. And that is what they named the, uh, the vineyard and of course the winery to follow. Yeah. And he showed um, extraordinary uh, foresight and uh, business acumen. Uh, but the one thing uh, that he couldn't stop, of course, was prohibition in right. 1920, uh, 13 years uh, where alcohol was banned. Um, that took down um, you know, uh, the wine oh. industry. Um, it, it, it decimated the wine industry, of course. So um, this is, again, him being somewhat canny, isn't it? This is sacramental wine that uh, he yes. was then producing. Absolutely. And, and actually, a, a few things happened before that, that that set him up to be very successful during Prohibition. So uh, after he purchased that first property, which, which, by the way, we still own and farm today, it's about 130 acres uh, with 80 acres planted. He went in and he planted Petite Syrah. So he ripped out the, the existing plum trees, went in with Petite Syrah, began growing the grapes, and he would sell some of his fruit, make little bits of wine uh, as well. And he also started importing grapevines from France that were grafted onto phylloxera-resistant rootstock. Uh, and at the turn of the century, you know, <clears throat> it had become documented that phylloxera exists in the Napa Valley. People were losing vineyards, and he helped to salvage many of the vineyards around the valley through this business. So he was doing well. Um, but then in about 1904, uh, actually through a relationship that his wife had with the, with the Catholic Church in San Francisco, they started producing sacramental wine. <clears throat> so fast forward to 1920, and he was very well positioned to survive prohibition through the production of sacramental wine. So again, 1920 to 1933, completely illegal within the United States to produce alcohol and to sell it with the exception of through sacramental purposes or medicinal purposes. And he had a license to do both of these things. Um, and while everybody was, was shutting down basically during this time and also selling property for pennies on the dollar, he was purchasing more property, planting more vineyards, and he had quadrupled the size of Beaulieu during Prohibition, which was, was unheard of. So in 1933, by the time Prohibition ended, their annual production was over a million gallons. Uh, and so, you know, very significant volume for a, a relatively unknown region even at that point in time. So it is amazing. What he did. Yeah, because prohibition, generally speaking, a complete disaster for Napa, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it completely destroyed the industry. There, there were very few producers that, that really survived. Uh, and even those who did, you know, were kind of limping along. De La Tour was able to, to really profit during this period and actually was able to acquire much of the land that we still farm today, which would be considered to be our top vineyards, were actually uh, acquired during that era, during Prohibition. Yeah, amazing. He's not the only famous name from the winery's history, though, because uh, you're only the fifth chief winemaker in basically about 120 years of the winery. Talk about stepping into big shoes when uh, you took over, because Andre uh, Chelischev, often called the maestro, uh, was uh, appointed, I think, uh, by uh, Georges um, de la Tour and went on to really be, well, certainly um, for, for a time at least, the most famous person in, in American wine, uh, basically, didn't he? 
Absolutely. So that that was, um, I mean, yeah, t- talking about filling some big shoes. I mean, this this is somebody who single handedly revolutionized the way that wines were made, not not only at Beaulieu, but really in, across the entire Napa Valley. When Prohibition ended in 1933, De La Tour, you know, is now in his 70s. He wanted to to pass the reins down to somebody who could really uplift the quality of wines coming out of the region. So he turned his attention very much toward the quality potential of wines uh, to come out of the region. And so he met Andre Telleschef in 1937 at the Pasteur Institute in Paris. Uh, by this point in time, Andre had already made uh, a name for himself, right? He was a brilliant scientist uh, specializing in chemistry and agronomy. He was collaborating with many of the, you know, the, the, the famous houses around Bordeaux, you know, and he was, people were trying to poach him, right? And so De La Tour must have been a very convincing fellow to get Andre to agree to come back to this relatively unknown place called the Napa Valley and to take over winemaking at Beaulieu. And so he landed here in 1938 and he stayed with us until 1973 when he left and he you know, went to do some other projects and then ultimately came back in 1991 as a consultant at 90 years old, by the way, uh, and passed away in 1994. Um, as I had mentioned, you know, this is a man who revolutionized the way that wines were made. He introduced winemaking techniques to the region that you know, we, we somewhat take for granted today, but they didn't exist before Andre arrived here. So things such as uh, temperature controlled fermentation, the need to be very, very sanitary in the winemaking process, um, utilizing, you know, known strains of yeast and bacteria to complete, uh, to successfully complete alcoholic fermentation and malolactic fermentation, frost protection in vineyards, using small French oak barrels. All of these things Andre really introduced to the region uh, early upon his arrival, right? Um, and so very quickly after he joined Beaulieu, uh, the quality of wines started going through the roof and started ascending very, very quickly. And he also had a, a philosophy. Uh, he was quoted as saying many times that a rising tide lifts all boats, right? So he wanted to see the success of the Napa Valley in general uh, increase. He was very much a tutor and mentor to, to many of the great winemakers that came after him, uh, such as Robert Mondavi, Joseph Heights, Michael Gergich, all these guys who, who worked for Andre at some point in their career, um, he was this amazing teacher. And this is why we call him the, the maestro or the, uh, the father of Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon, because he, he single-handedly, um, again, c- completely revolutionized the way that wines were made and, and put the Napa Valley on the map, essentially. And to this day, there are many famous Napa names who have, have basically cited uh, Andre uh, Chelischeff as seminal in their own kind of wine journey, aren't there? Absolutely. No, he was, you know, beloved by the entire industry, right? And he, he was everywhere. He touched so many lives, you know, helped so many winemakers along their own journeys, um, you know, just somebody who was an incredible figure within our industry. And and I can honestly say that, um, you know, if it were not for this man, that the landscape of the Napa Valley would be different today. It would be a different place. Well, let's uh, go back to your own uh, wine journey, because there's a big quote from you on the emblazoned across the uh, Beaulieu website. Uh, Early in my winemaking career, I recall trying the 1968 Georges de la Tour 
private reserve Cabernet Sauvignon with a family friend. It not only left an indelible impression on me, but it shaped the path of my career and the wines I wanted to create. Wow. Uh, tell us more yeah. about that uh, that experience and, and, and how well, it was, it's it was, uh, shaped you. Of course. No, this was this was one of the, the, the greatest moments that I've experienced in my life. And I think um, you speak to any winemaker and they'll pretty much every one of them will have this uh, this aha wine, right? This wine that they they enjoyed early on in their career that would have inspired them uh, to do what they do today, right? Uh, and so when I had made the decision, now this is going back to university, when I had made the decision to uh, change my entire trajectory into the world of winemaking, I was invited, I think I was about 19 years old at the time, and I was invited to a tasting uh, by a family friend uh, who has your typical, you know, monthly tasting group where they'll have, you know, maybe 15 members or so. They'll get together once a month. Um, they will pre-select a, uh, a vintage in an appellation from anywhere around the world, and everybody brings a bottle, uh, and they taste them blind, right? And you eat a bunch of food, drink great wine, argue about who brought the best bottle, all of that good stuff that we all experience. The theme of this particular tasting happened to be 1968 Napa Valley. So first of all, I must have done something uh, incredible in my previous life to actually get invited to, to this in the first place. But uh, this would have been in 2001. So the wines would have had quite a bit of age on them already. And I recall tasting, you know, of course, the, the Georges de la Tour Private Reserve. Uh, we had a Heights Martha's Vineyard. We had a couple of incredible Inglenook wines, including a Charbonneau, which was phenomenal as well. And, and so many of these incredible wines from a legendary vintage, which was 1968, right? And the wine that stood out to me and absolutely blew me away and for the first time made me say, I cannot believe a wine can do that. And I would like to make something like this uh, was the 1968 George de la Tour Private Reserve. And so... You know, all of these years later to now have the, the incredible honor to be at the helm of this producer that did that to me all of those years ago is, is just one of the greatest things that I could ever dream of uh, in my winemaking career. And so I often share this story with my, with my own winemaking team because, you know, at the end of the day, I would like the wines that we're crafting today to do that to somebody else, you know, 40 years down the, down the road. We have the vineyards in the, in the incredible terroir to be able to do that. This particular wine dates back, uh, well, I think it was released in 1941 for the first time, but it was the 1936 vintage, I think, if I've done my homework correctly. Um, and, oh, thank you. Good. Uh, I tasted uh, the 2018 uh, last night. Uh, fantastic wine. Uh, I was probably drinking it somewhat young, I suspect, as well, but it's already showing magnificently. Um, tell us about uh, about this flagship wine for Beaulieu. Yes, so you're absolutely correct. It goes back to 1936. And, you know, again, at that point in time, De La Tour, you know, had really um, turned his focus and his attention towards the quality potential. So he had a dream of coming out with a, a flagship wine for Beaulieu that would, that would change the way that wines are viewed from the Napa Valley. Now, um, Andre, again, arrived in 1938. And other than what I had mentioned before around, you know, overhauling, you know, various winemaking techniques, one of the first things that he did was, of course, to taste through the wines that had not been put in bottle yet. Uh, and the 1936 vintage had not yet bottled. Uh, so he tasted through uh, all of the inventory. Everything had been kept separately, uh, mainly in these very large redwood tanks, of course, at the time. And he 
came to Georges Latour and said, hey, I think we have the quality potential with some of these parcels to assemble a small blend uh, and to, to create a flagship for Beaulieu. So they selected their favorite parcels, they held them for an additional year, uh, and then put them and blended them and bottled them in 1939. Um, now it's important to note though, that they were bottled as shiners, which means naked bottles, no label. Uh, they had not come up with a name for this yet. And unfortunately, our founder, Georges de la Tour, passed away in 1940 before this wine was released. Uh, and this is why his widow, uh, Anne Teleschef, had decided to name the wine in his honor. And there you have Georges de la Tour Private Reserve. So also prior to its release, it was entered into a famous wine tasting that was held on Treasure Island, just outside of San Francisco, as part of the World's Fair. And you had a panel of judges tasting various wines from around the world. Uh, and, you know, they, they discovered this 1936, what would become Georges de la Tour Private Reserve. And for the first time, there was a wine that hit this quality note that nobody had ever seen before from the United States in general. Uh, and so it had gained quite a bit of press even before its first release in 1941. Uh, and bam, you had a new benchmark and standard of quality for wines coming out of the entire region. Uh, by the time the United States entered the Second World War, you know, this wine had become the primary wine that uh, served at the White House. So all White House functions, state dinners, you had a foreign visitor coming over, uh, they would most likely be drinking and be served uh, Georges de la Tour Private Reserve. And it was really the, the pride and joy to come out of the, uh, the entire valley and, and also change the landscape of the place. And so all of these years later, you know, one of my favorite things about tasting back vintages of this wine is that you we're essentially using the same vineyards. So you have that core terroir expression, which is that beautiful Rutherford dust. And you will notice, you know, changes in, in weather patterns and viticulture technology and winemaking technology and all of those things. So the style of the wines will modify, you know, be modified over the years. But again, there's that central core of consistency, which is that incredible expression of the unique terroir that we have. And that exists from the 18, which you just tasted last night, all the way back to the original vintage of 1936. And this is often described as the first cult cabernet from uh, Napa Valley. Just explain what that means and, and why that's important. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think the, 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 the cult uh, saying there is, is meant to describe, you know, a wine that becomes, uh, you know, that just has this incredible following. And it's, uh, again, it started as a very small production wine and, and, you know, you could buy it locally, but, you know, much of it was being, again, served at the White House and, and, and shipped to, you know, a few very key markets within the U.S. And then, of course, it started growing from there. But I think probably even a better way to put that would be that it was the first wine to come out of the United States that would be recognized as, you know, kind of a parallel to a first growth uh, offering, right? So it was given these, this incredibly high honor. And, and again, it became that benchmark and standard of quality, uh, unlike anything that had ever been seen before. Mm, which continues to this day. Uh, you mentioned uh, Rutherford Dust there, which um, sounds rather unglamorous, really, um, when you when you consider that it's it's such a special thing that's synonymous with very expensive, prestigious wines. Um, yeah. Just explain uh, to those who are unfamiliar uh, with uh, Rutherford. Just explain what Rutherford dust is. 
Yes. So it is a, well, first of all, the, this saying actually came, you know, dates back to the 1960s uh, when Andre Teleschev was famously quoted as saying, it takes a lot of Rutherford dust to grow great Cabernet. And this, of course, you know, he was, he was describing the, the terroir, the, the, the actual place that Rutherford is, the unique growing, you know, conditions that we see here that, that create this, these incredible wines um, from the region. And very quickly after he said that, it started being used quite commonly as a sensory descriptor. And so the way that I describe it is more of a textural element uh, to where you get this, this cocoa powder texture and associated flavor profile that will hit you on the mid palate, melt into the finish. You almost get the dustiness of Rutherford itself. So these dusty tannins, um, you have a, you know, these wines that are incredibly powerful and ageable, but they're rounded in their texture. And that's one of the unique things that we have here in Rutherford is you have this incredible situation where you have these wines that can lay down and age for decades and decades for those that have the patience for it, uh, but also taste wonderfully right out of the gate because of that texture of tannin that we get. Uh, and of course, you know, the aromatically speaking, you get a little bit of that forest floor. So some of the mushroom, the dark fruit profile, uh, you can almost smell the soil itself in the wine, which is, you know, Andre always used to, um, you know, when he, when he would make wines from different parts of the valley, he would go to his winemakers and he'd make them pick up scoops of dirt with their hand and smell the dirt. And he said, this is what the wine should express is the, is the place like this. And so again, I think that Rutherford dust characteristic is extremely unique of Cabernet in particular grown in, in the Rutherford district, um, but is mostly a textural thing for me. And from what you're saying, it really helps with that approachability too, uh, because, you know, uh, although Bordeaux wines ha have, to be fair, um, changed a lot in terms of yeah. earlier approachability in, in recent times. Um, it's always been the case that uh, wines like yours um, have been easier to get on with early in their life. And do you think the Rutherford dust then, from what you're saying, is is a, is a factor in that? Yes, I think it absolutely is a factor. Um, but you'll notice this, you know, again, when you compare the Napa Valley to many regions around the world, I mean, I think we've always had that kind of on our side. And, and much of that comes from the, the overall uh, growing conditions that we experience, right? We're able to get the riper phenolics um, by the time we harvest. Uh, now we, we somewhat have the opposite problem that other regions have, which is where we might have too much heat, right? So we're, we're watching to make sure that we don't cross that line of becoming overripe. So the best vintages in my view are where, you know, you have slightly cooler nights, you have warm daytime temperatures, but not too hot because I want that phenolic ripeness to be correct without the sugar being too high and the acid being too low. So you still want to have, you know, that high natural acidity to maintain the freshness, et cetera. But that's kind of the first advantage we have is just the overall growing climate. But then you combine that with the soil profile that we have and all of that, you get this Rutherford dust, you know, phenolic texture, et cetera. And that is why we really are able to craft, craft wines that you can enjoy early on out of the gate, uh, as well as lay down in age. And there's also something, you know, there's a few things that we do in the winery that will help with that as well. Um, of course, you know, 90% of it is in the vineyard, but when we receive grapes at the winery, first of all, we're putting them through an optical sorter. So we're selecting only the very best berries to make it into the fermenter in the first place and kicking out anything that's underripe or, 
um, not ripe enough, you know, uh, might have some kind of issue, translucent berries, things like this that we do not want getting into the fermenter. But I will barrel ferment some of this uh, on the skins, right? And this is a, a, a very big logistical challenge, uh, but it's where I run the fruit through the optical sorter. We take uh, a number of barrels, so standard Bordeaux barrels at 225 liters. We remove the head. So we essentially take the entire barrel apart. We crush 400 pounds of, of must into the barrel. We put the head back on, put the hoops back on, all of this. And then we roll the barrels during fermentation to allow for that, that earlier oak extraction. So you get the tannin and the power that'll help with ageability. But there's also a lot of non-fermentable sugars that exist in oak. And at that warmer fermentation temperature, you help extract some of this into the wine and it gives you meat on the bone. It gives you this incredible uh, texture that gives you the perception of approachability early on. And so that combined with the vineyard expression and, and again, the growing conditions that we have here in Napa, that creates this scenario where you have wines at this level that are relatively approachable early on in their life. You also have just delicious fruit profile um, in the wine. And I was uh, reading up on, again, on the, the winery's history, um, clonal sort of experimentation, clonal development um, has been a big factor at Beaulieu for very many years, hasn't it? Well before um, you were even at UC Davis, probably. Yes, Absolutely. And so, you know, Bolia has been very, um, pretty, pretty pioneering in terms of research on uh, clonal selection of Cabernet Sauvignon. So we teamed up with UC Davis, uh, actually starting in the, in the late 1970s, um, and or, or went in with a uh, clonal research trial at one of our vineyards in 1981. And so we worked with UC Davis to where we picked, I believe it was 14 different selections of Cabernet Sauvignon, so different clones, right? Um, and just to be clear for listeners who aren't sure exactly what this is, this is not a genetically modified organism, anything like this, right? It's, it's, it's quite popular in Burgundy. You hear of the Dijon clones, the Pomard clones, et cetera. Not as much research has been done historically on Bordeaux varietals. But this is where, you know, if you have a single plant, a Cabernet Sauvignon, let's say, and you take cuttings from that and you plant it at various places around the world, over time, those plants will adapt to their environment, you know, whether it's changes in rainfall, temperature, soil composition, all this stuff. You then bring those vines, cuttings of those vines back to one central location, and you have selections of Cabernet Sauvignon that have, you know, different attributes. Okay, so that, that's really what we're talking about here. So in 81, we, we donated, uh, oh, probably close to 20 acres of, of one of our vineyards to UC Davis, where we took 14 different clonal selections of Cabernet, planted them in a very specific manner throughout that block, and made separate batches of wine every year off of those pure clones. And so, of course, even before the harvest period, you'd be taking, you know, viticultural data such as pruning weight, cluster size, berry size, cluster weight, all of those things. Um, and then you had a sensory panel who would taste the wines every year that were made off of them and, and take down, you know, all kinds of notes. Uh, and the idea here was to land on the favorite colonial selections of Cabernet uh, for the style of wines that they were going for. And so they landed on two at the time. So UC Davis clone four and clone six. 
Clone 4 actually uh, goes back to cuttings that were taken from vineyards in Mendoza, Argentina. Uh, and Clone 6 is relatively native to California, right? So, of course, Cabernet Sauvignon is a Bordeaux varietal. would have started in Bordeaux and then traveled to these places. Clone 6 comes from the Sierra foothills in a place called Jackson, California. And this is a very rugged clone of Cabernet Sauvignon. So uh, low yielding, small berries, tremendous power and concentration because of the small berries. So you have high skin to juice ratio, all of that. Clone 4 was a little bit more of a consistent producer. So a little bit higher yielding, but it had that incredible flavor profile and tannin um, texture that we'd be looking for. And those two are essentially the building blocks of Georges de la Tour Private Reserve today. Now we've actually added a couple of other clonal selections uh, that didn't exist back in 1981 when they, when they first did this trial. But the point of all this is that there has been a tremendous amount of research done in terms of what clonal selections of Cabernet work the best, particularly on the Western Rutherford bench here. By the way, when you talk about the Rutherford bench, it's just worth explaining uh, to those listening over here what that means as well, because bench is one of those expressions that's used in America, but isn't kind of used over here. You are talking about a line of, of, of land, a hill, basically, aren't we? Yes. So on the western side of the Napa Valley, uh, we have the Mayacamas mountain range. And so that's a mountain range that, that divides the Napa Valley from Sonoma, essentially. So at the base of that, on the Napa Valley side, we have, well, here in Rutherford, we call that the Rutherford Bench. So it's this incredible alluvial fan, right? So uh, that soil has washed down over that mountain range for millions and millions of years. You have little bits of clay, gravel, sand, kind of a perfect composition to where we have just the right amount of drainage. And we call it the Rutherford Bench because it's slightly elevated from the true valley floor, which will be kind of where the Napa River flows through in the middle. So a little bit elevated, very gently sloped uh, towards the middle of the valley. And so I always call our vineyards there our vertically challenged hillside vineyards because they're not really on a hill, but there is a gentle slope, uh, which, of course, helps with sun aspect and, and drainage. And it's, it's a, something that creates this really unique terroir expression of Rutherford dust. It all has to do with the soil and the microclimate right there. That's a, yeah, I've learned something new myself uh, from, from chatting to you already, which is uh, just uh, really, really great. Um, you, you have, beyond Rutherford, you have quite a few different plots that you're uh, bringing uh, in fruit from, and they're all named Ranch, and then they seem to have a number. I assume that's a, a sort of Californian tradition, is it, to call it a ranch? Well, it's actually a, a tradition that De La Tour started. So um, just to, to maintain simplicity, and actually it's funny that you bring this up because uh, each of these numbered ranches actually do have a historical name associated with them, which we are, um, I'm definitely uh, going to be bringing back because it's just a little bit more romantic and it tells you a little bit more about the history. But that being said, you know, for simplicity, what they would do for many years is they would just refer to them as ranch numbers. So you had ranch number one, which was the first vineyard that was purchased back in 1900. Uh, ranch number two, uh, which is actually named after Madame de la Tour, but anyway, they called it ranch number two that was purchased in 1910 from the Catholic Church. And that is the southern end of Rutherford. So actually, the southern block of BV number two is where Rutherford ends and Oakville begins. It actually borders Tokalon right there on the western side. And then you have number three, number four, um, which were, you know, uh, on the eastern side of Rutherford and then Oakville. And then, you, you know, 
they purchased more property over the years, all the way up to number 12, uh, which is our northernmost vineyard in the Calistoga district, which is the warmest part of the Napa Valley. That's also our largest single vineyard at about 340 acres. Um, but all in all, we have oh, about 1,100 acres throughout the Napa Valley, which is a very significant amount of land in a, and again, a relatively small growing region. Yeah, lucky you, because it must be worth a bomb as well uh, at uh, today's rates. Yeah, land is phenomenally expensive where you are, isn't it? It certainly is. And, and you know, land, not only the land, but of course, the cost of grapes. And that's one of the, the big advantages that we have at Beaulieu is that, you know, we've owned our own vineyards for over a century uh, and, and for the most part. I mean, there were some that were purchased, of course, later on. Uh, but that's a huge advantage because we're not, we don't need to buy fruit. We do, of course, have some contracts with, you know, longtime uh, vineyard connections with, with, with private growers that we've been working with for decades. Uh, but because of the fact that we own and farm our own vineyards, we are less tied to rising grape prices. Um, as if we were, you know, for, for younger producers uh, who haven't been around as long, who are you know, may not own their own vineyards and are purchasing fruit, that's a huge advantage because we're allowed to keep our wines at a, at a reasonable price because we don't have that uh, close tie to, to rising grape prices. Yeah, that, good point. And uh, uh, you know, lucky you, because it is, as you say, it's a, a huge challenge for people who are uh, kind of starting out. You talked there about um, you know, land that's uh, been in uh, Bolia's ownership since uh, you know, 1900, 1910, and so forth. When we talk about old world and new world, you know, obviously it's, it's a shorthand and we all understand it is a fairly lazy shorthand. But uh, does it sort of irritate you that we refer to uh, California, to the Napa Valley as new world when you've got that kind of history? I mean, no, it doesn't irritate me because when you, when you think about, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge, you can probably hear from, you know, just listening to me speak that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big history buff and I absolutely love this part of our business. And let's face it, I mean, 1900, that's old by California standards, but it is not old in terms of, you know, the, the, the global winemaking. Okay. I mean, you go to, to Europe and, you know, centuries and centuries and centuries of, of making wine. And I think that is an accurate call to, to, to refer to it as part of the new world, because um, although we're now in a place where we do have a lot of history, it did originate, you know, in other parts of the world. Um, and so I think it's, it's a really interesting thing to have that point of differentiation, because of course, you're also expressing a different growing climate and in a different style. Mm. And the way you make wines at uh, Beaulieu does uh, arguably involve kind of the new world and the old world anyway, doesn't it? That the, you know, Both terms could apply to, to, to you and your wines and the style of the wines. Oh, it certainly does. I mean, I think, you know, from the very, very beginning, I mean, this is something, remember, Georges Latour was born in Bordeaux, right? He was used to drinking these wines for his entire life. I think one thing that we have very much in common with most new world or excuse me, most old world producers is that we are very terroir driven. We really, every single glass of wine that you drink from Beaulieu should be expressive of its place. And that is, that is King. That is form, first and foremost, the most important thing. We put a lot of input into grape growing and vineyard management. And so by the time, you know, the grapes arrive at the winery, our job is to very gently shepherd that whole process into the bottle. Uh, but it is this incredible combination of those traditional winemaking techniques and philosophies paired with 
tools that are of the latest and greatest technology available at our fingertips, right? And so it's this, we're kind of taking the best of both scenarios here um, to craft these wines. Of course, the one thing that you can't control in the winery is climate change. And uh, it's a big issue, frankly, anywhere in the world that, you know, that, that, yeah. that, that wine is produced. Um, is there a kind of um, a concern there that, you know, you, you could find that Napa gets, you know, too hot? Well, I mean, I think, you know, we've experienced that certainly over the last 10 years, we've, we've very much noticed uh, rising temperatures. I think that we're well ahead of the game, though, in terms of, you know, technology around, okay, irrigation management. So we are allowed to irrigate here very much unlike certain other parts of the world. Now that doesn't always mean that we have enough groundwater to do that adequately, but we have invested in significant technology in terms of targeting even specific vines within a vineyard that need water versus, you know, maybe on the bookends, you don't need to water those particular plants. So it's come a long way from the old days of flood irrigation, for example. Um, there's also a lot of research going into, you know, rootstock selection, clonal selection that might be, or even varietals that are a bit more drought tolerant. Um, of course, you know, when people think of the Napa Valley, they think Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, and I think that Cabernet will be king here for a very, very long time. I don't see that changing. Cabernet is, is actually very heat tolerant, but we are adapting how we are managing, again, irrigation practices as well as canopy management. So I am now, you know, leaving quite a bit more uh, lateral shoots, more, more um, shade cover uh, in the vineyard to really maintain that freshness and allow the phenolics to ripen without any dehydration or the sugar, you know, going too high or any of that. So it can be managed, but that, you know, that being said, you know, there's always research and development going on in terms of, again, new rootstocks, new varietals to introduce to the region and that kind of thing. So we will adapt with time as needed, but for, you know, Cabernet will be king for a very long time. Mm. But you're working with some interesting varieties. Tariga Nacional is yeah. one of them isn't it? Yes, sir. Uh, and that is, uh, that's something I'm very proud of actually, because there's, as you can imagine, very little Tariga Nacional that, that is planted in the Napa Valley, um, mainly for financial reasons, honestly, because uh, Cabernet Sauvignon would command a much higher price <laughs> typically. Um, but this is a legacy vineyard. That, so this is part of uh, our ranch in Calistoga, where we have a portion in the middle of that vineyard that, that I always jokingly refer to as the fruit salad. Uh, because we have these really interesting varietals that are uncommonly planted in the Napa Valley, such as Tariga Nacional, uh, Tempranillo, Charbono. We have quite a bit of Petit Syrah planted there. Uh, we did have Zinfandel for a long time. So these really, really unique uh, varietals that, you know, we, we, we do make small amounts of wines from that are sold basically direct out of the, the tasting room here, because of course we don't have the volume to get it outside of that. Um, and that's where I, you know, what we call the winemaker's playground. So we do get to, to mess with some of these varietals um, and see what we can do with them, which is, which is quite an interesting thing. Um, and it always keeps your mind active and you're learning new techniques and, and uh, there's trial and error and all that, all that good stuff. That's the artistic side of winemaking. Yeah, I bet. What is your winemaking philosophy? If you had to boil it down, if someone said, you know, what makes you tick when it comes to making wine uh, in the way that you do? What is that philosophy? Terroir expression. So it's not about me. It's not about the, you know, what we really do in the winery. It's about expressing that place, which is from the, which is the vineyard. That's really mm. what it comes down to. 
good, snappy answer as well. Sometimes those uh, answers go on a, a, a long time. So that, that, that's, that's great. And that's very evident in, in, in the wine that I was uh, tasting last night. Talking of which, uh, final question. We uh, always ask our guests for a, a desert island wine. So if you're stuck on a desert island and you can have one particular wine, it may well be, because it can be an historical wine. So it could even be that 1968 you referenced. But what would be your desert island wine, Trevor? Well, the, the 1968, of course, was my aha wine, so I take that any day. But I have to say, and I hope this, it's somewhat cliche to, to say this, but one of the greatest wine experiences that I've ever had in my life, certainly after that point where I tasted the 68, was a flight of Domaine Romane Conti. And I'm a big, a, a, a huge lover of, of Burgundy, um, not only for the wines themselves, but the history and that entire region. So uh, I do have expensive taste, but I would say DRC. You do have expensive tastes. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a good answer, though. Um, uh, Trevor, it's a great um, pleasure to talk to you. I I've learned a lot. I'm sure um, um, others listening will have learned a lot as well. And uh, it's great to be talking about history uh, so much as well uh, in the context of wine. So thanks ever so much for uh, taking the time out to talk to us on The Drinking Hour. Thank you so much, David. It's been a pleasure to be here with you all. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. Let's round off, as always, with some medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame. These from the 2022 judging process and the USA is our focus this time. Let's head to Lodi first, famous for its old vine Zinfandel, of course. Here's a gold medal winner from the 2022 judging process, Seller 777 Bozini Zinfandel 2019, won 95 points, uh, landing it with a gold, of course. The tasting note, intense and attractively oaky, delicious, ripe, dark, plush, plum and damson, concentrated fruit muddled with a lovely touch of characterful spice. Well-integrated spicy oak and lovely fine-grained tannins with a pure, balanced, long finish. Staying with Zin, Dark Horse Zinfandel 2020 did incredibly well uh, to land a gold medal and 95 points. Uh, it's not an expensive wine at all, just a very well-made one. Uh, there's around 13% uh, Petite Syrah in here too, by the way. And it's from the mighty Gallo stable of wineries. Uh, here's the tasting note. A wonderfully full and vibrant wine. The nose shows pronounced black fruit and cassis. Concentrated boysenberry, plum, cassis and vanilla all feature on this powerfully structured wine on the palate. Great energy and a long, complex finish. Let's head up the coast from California to uh, Washington State, which is uh, also justly proud of its Cabernet. This one from another really big producer, Chateau Saint-Michel Cabernet Sauvignon 2018, won a gold medal with 95 points. Here's the tasting note from the panel, overseen by Alistair Cooper, MW, and featuring another master of wine, Sarah Knowles, a buyer at uh, the Wine Society and a previous guest here on The Drinking Hour. Here's the tasting note. Elegant and pronounced aromas of fine red and dark fruit leap from the glass. A wonderful concentration of fruit with eucalyptus, cacao and chocolate adding complexity. Characterful and vibrant with fine tannins, cedar oak notes and a spicy finish. 
staying in Washington State uh, with a cooler climate classic, another from Chateau Saint-Michel, this time working with Dr. Lucen, European brand, German, fairly obviously. Eroica Riesling 2020 won a silver medal with 91 points. I was actually on the judging panel for this one myself, along with Harry Crowther, Whitaker Tempema and Barbara Drew, MW. Uh, we obviously enjoyed this. Here's our tasting note. Zesty texture with lemon and grapefruit overlaying slate and flint. This is a great example, well-balanced with a lovely lick of minerality. And I actually tasted the latest vintage of this wine only the other day at uh, Inotria and Co. Tasting, uh, their importer in the UK. And it's uh, tasting great. To round off, a sweet treat and a gold medal winner to boot. Quadi Winery Essencia Orange Muscat 2019. A tasting note, complex notes of sweet dried apricot, marmalade, honey, nuts and caramel are so well balanced by the exhilarating acidity. The finish is endless in this full flavoured, complex and outstanding wine. So well done to them. And that's it for another episode of The Drinking Hour. My thanks to Trevor Derling for a fascinating chat. He really knows his history. And his Georges de la Tour Private Reserve Cabernet Sauvignon is a proper treat. Uh, you can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. Do join us next time if you can. For now, goodbye. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.